Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, Oak City Church, and thanks for those of you that are tuning in with us this morning. Um, Welcome. We hope you're doing well, and we hope that if you're not, um, that if you're struggling through this time, if you're struggling with physical needs, with emotional needs, uh, that you let us know and that you let um, each other know and that you're working hard to stay in touch um, because it's harder to stay in touch, uh, but you can still do it. So stay in touch with each other during this time. We um, have a routine as a church. We ask people each week to fill out these connect cards and it is a way of connecting with each other and a way for us as um, leaders of the church to connect with you. And uh, part of that is we ask you to fill out some prayer requests. And really, that's a, a way for you to reflect on things that, that you need to be asking for God for. And then, and then some praises and things that you're grateful for. And so that's on the, on the live stream page on the website at the bottom. There is a, virtual, a digital connect card. And so we'd ask you to fill that out. Uh, if you're visiting and you would like some more information about the church or someone to contact you, you can also um, just check a box at the bottom. And, and we had a few people do that last week, and, uh, and it's great. So um, please do that, and we'd love to get in touch with you. We, um, we're in a series called The Faces of Easter. Uh, leading up to Easter, we're looking at different characters in the Gospels, in the Easter story, and what they teach us about our faith and what they teach us about following Jesus. So the first week of the series, we looked at Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and really she taught us about suffering. She was ordained to go through some really difficult things. And I think the Bible tells us all of us are going to go through some tough things and God's there the whole time and he's in control. And so we learned about that from her. And last week we looked at Pontius Pilate and we looked at Pilate's struggle with trying to figure out what to make of Jesus and what to believe and what to do about it. And in that, I think we learn about um, how, how we struggle with our faith and how our faith is formed and how the faith of the people around us is formed. And this week, we're going to look at a little bit of a different character, but it's the crowd. It's the crowd. And the crowd is a, it's a character throughout the Gospels. You read the Gospels and Jesus teaches the crowd. Um, Jesus feeds the crowd. Jesus heals the crowd. Uh, there's a passage where it says Jesus looked on the crowd and had compassion on them, like his, his guts turned over for them because they were harassed and they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he prayed to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest to reach the multitudes, the crowd. Um, Jesus, at different times, hid from the crowd. And so they are this nameless, faceless character throughout the Gospels, and they have a vital role in this week leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the Gospels, all of them, give us some insight into the crowds. And crowds are crowds. Crowds aren't that much different then than they are now, and we're all impacted by the crowd. And so the crowd is going to teach us about the courage that's required to follow Jesus. And so that's what we're going to see with the crowds. Now, I'm going to, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to spend a few minutes going through um, a few different passages in the Gospels in this last week of Jesus' Life, and we're gonna we're just gonna see the trajectory of the crowds, and then I'm gonna make a series of statements about crowds and how they impact our faith. So, this is Matthew 21. Uh, it's Palm Sunday. Next week is actually Palm Sunday, but this is Matthew 21, 
and it's from Palm Sunday. And that's the Sunday where Jesus walks into Jerusalem. And then he goes through this week where he does some teaching and he spends some time with his disciples and he ends up on the cross and with an empty tomb. And so this is, this is the text. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They put on them uh, their cloaks and Jesus sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before Jesus that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now that is a quote from Psalm 118. And the word Hosanna is a word that in the Hebrew means save us. And so they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, save us. And that's what the psalm says too. And this is, this is going to be key and it's going to flow through my whole sermon. But you have to ask, who are they asking Jesus to save them from? They want Jesus to save them. But what does that mean? What do they want salvation uh, from? And we're going to find out that what they want salvation from is the Romans, is the oppression that, that they're under. So this scene continues when Jesus entered Jerusalem The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So they praised Jesus as a prophet, um, maybe the Messiah, but a prophet who is going to save them from the Romans. That's who the crowd see him at the beginning of the week. Now, throughout the week, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and again, he's doing some teaching, and some to the crowds, and some to the disciples, and their religious leaders, and the religious leaders are the ones that are aligned against Jesus uh, because they're jealous of Jesus, and because they disagree with Jesus theologically, and so they're going to shape the narrative, which is what people do with crowds, is shape the narrative around Jesus throughout the week, and they get into this one conversation with him where they ask Jesus, by what authority are you performing all the signs that you're performing? And Jesus answers a question with a question, which he's really good at. This is some Kung Fu Jesus. And he says, okay, I'll answer your question. If you tell me by what authority John the Baptist baptized people, because he was a really controversial figure. And it says that, that they, the religious leaders discussed it amongst themselves saying, if we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you believe in John the Baptist? And because the religious leaders didn't like John the Baptist and John the Baptist didn't really like the religious leaders. He preached against the religious leaders. And so they were aligned against him, but they continued. If we say from man, then we are afraid of the crowd because the crowd all held that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See you guys later. <laughs> and that's just how Jesus worked. But what's, why I bring that passage up is because the religious leaders, it said, were afraid of the crowd. They were afraid of the crowd. Now, um, next, just a few verses later, Jesus tells a parable. And I'm not going to read this whole parable, but it's to the effect of throughout Israel's history, the religious leaders... Uh, have screwed things up. And now the religious leaders are screwing things up again. And then Matthew writes, when the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest Jesus, they feared the crowds because the crowds held Jesus to be a prophet. So again, the religious leaders fear the crowds and the crowds think that Jesus is a prophet. Um, A little bit later in that week, uh, John records a midweek interaction between Jesus and the crowds. And Jesus is praying 
to his father about kind of a prayer of anguish, realizing what he's about to go through and says, my, this is my hour. My hour has come and that's not good. And he says to God, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven that said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there heard that and they heard that it had thundered. It it didn't come across like, you know, they couldn't understand it, but just uh, something, you know, and others said an angel has spoken to Jesus and Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And he means spiritually that Satan's going to be cast out. They probably think he's talking about Rome again. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. But here he throws the crowds off because they think he's a prophet. They think he's a Messiah. They think he's going to save them. And so one that's going to save them is surely not going to die. And the crowd answered him. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? And Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from the crowd. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so this scene tells us that the crowds don't really get who Jesus is. You can hear their confusion. You know, a Messiah is going to Hosanna them. He is going to save them from Rome, not die, but he is more than what they think he is. And he's saving them from something that they're not, they don't think they realize that they need to be saved from. And so by the end of the week, Jesus has been arrested. And that's not what a Messiah does is get arrested and goes through these trials and has false witnesses testify against him and sees his support dwindle as even his disciples scatter in the wake of the power play by the religious leaders. And so uh, he ends up in the scene that we went through last week where he's before Pontius Pilate and the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd. They persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor, Pilate, again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So you see the crowd praised him at the beginning of the week, questioned him in the middle of the week, and turned on him by the end of the week. And God used all of this for his purposes. God was sovereign over the whole thing. Um, but that's the way those dynamics played out. And these dynamics still play themselves out with crowds that way. And they're always going to play themselves out with crowds that way. And so why? Why did the crowds turn on them? How did the crowd influence events then? And how does the crowd influence events now? And what influences the crowds um, to act the way that they do? So I'm going to go through just a series of statements about crowds that we see from this passage and in, in, in life. And the first is this, that crowds have power. Crowds have power. They've always had power and they're always going to have power. And groupthink is always going to be a thing. Uh, when I first 
the early in the week started going through this stuff and thinking about crowds, really one of the first things that came to my mind was a movie that we watched a lot in high school. It was a Monty Python movie. And there's a scene where they bring this woman set in medieval times. They bring this woman forward to the wise man in town and they say, she's a witch. Let us burn her. And she's like, I'm not a witch. And, and the guy says, why do you think she's a witch? She said, she looks like a witch. And she's like, they dressed me like this. <laughs> like we did the nose and the hat, but she's still a witch. And one guy says, she turned me into a newt. And then everybody looks at him. He's like, well, I got better. Uh, And that's just how crowds work. People can say ludicrous things and a crowd will do it. And crowds, I mean, just throughout history, there's endless, endless numbers of examples of groupthink. I mean, in that time, the Inquisition would be one where groupthink took over. Hitler never would have happened if we didn't get caught up in the crowd. The Red Scare after that in the United States uh, wouldn't have gone as far as it did if we didn't get caught up in that in um, you know, in British soccer for years, there was a hooligan thing where they'd work up the crowd and people would, hundreds of people died in those stampedes uh, at soccer games. Uh, after 9-11, you know, we, there's been a lot of talk comparing what we're going through now to what we went through then. And one of the differences is we don't have, we don't have an enemy with this one. We don't have anybody to pin this virus on. Well, after 9-11, we did. And so there was kind of mass racial profiling of anyone from the Middle East. And that's a group think. That had gone gone crazy. The um, the stock market is it's kind of a crowd mentality. You know, one person said that the stock market it works on earnings, but it works on emotions. And I've often thought you you might do better getting a psychology degree than a finance degree if you want to go work uh, in the stock market. And even in what we're going through right now, surely there's groupthink going on. And we don't know if we're overreacting or underreacting. And, and there will be books and documentaries for years about this um, afterwards. And right now we're waiting for somebody. I, I was watching something or I, on CNN. I read an article and it was an epidemiologist who works with the Centers for Disease Control saying he thinks that it's going to peak. And by that, he meant daily deaths will peak in about three weeks. But so we've all worked on flattening the curve and we were just waiting for an expert to tell us when we're going to crest over that curve and be on the downhill side of this. And then everything's going to change, but we're waiting for somebody to instigate the crowd to tell us, um, when it's going to be okay. You know, that there is light at the end of the tunnel and they've seen it and we can trust them. It's, crowds just have enormous influence and sometimes for good, uh, but oftentimes for bad, um, Crowds, crowds can be dangerous like that. And so social media has, um, has heightened the influence of the crowd because it's easier to get in a crowd and it's, they're more nameless and more faceless than they've ever been. Uh, I, there's a, the new term last week, I mentioned this, that a couple weeks ago, the term was flatten the curve. And last week it was deconstruction stories. And this week it's cancel culture. That's a term nobody knew about a few years ago, but now it's something that you hear a lot. And cancel culture is when the crowd has decided you have committed some form of unforgivable sin. And so they just destroy you. You know, there's an article, um, this is from the New York times magazine, one of the best examples of this, but it was called how one stupid tweet blew up Justine Sacco's life. And so this was a young woman in her 20s. She was a PR executive for a company in New York. And she was just a snarky whatever, and and probably still is. I don't know. And she was traveling from New York to South Africa. And she she was tweeting things like on an airplane, weird German dude, you're in first class. It's 2014. How about you get some deodorant? Like just stupid stuff. She got to London and she tweeted um, chili, cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth, 
I guess I'm back in London, um, which is kind of funny, but just snarky. And then she tweeted this. She said, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white, which is obviously in, in horrible taste and shouldn't have been tweeted, but also pretty obviously tongue in cheek. And um, she just didn't think much of this. She, she had a couple hours left in that layover. Nobody responded to the tweet. And she's just trying to get something going. She only had 170 Twitter followers, which isn't much. And, uh, and so she gets on the airplane. It's an 11-hour flight to Cape Town. By the time she gets off the plane, she is the number one trending topic on Twitter worldwide which if you don't know anything about Twitter, that's just a huge deal. And so people are tweeting stuff like, all I want for Christmas is to see Justine Sacco's face when her plane lands and she checks her inbox and her voicemail. Someone else said she is going to have the most painful phone turning on moment ever when her plane lands. Another person said, we're about to watch her get fired in real time before she even knows she's getting fired. Twitter like blew up with this thing such that someone went to the airport to find her. They had a picture of her and they took pictures of her as she's getting off the plane and checking her phone and it ruined her life. I mean, she got fired almost immediately. Uh, she couldn't find work for a while. I think, I think she ended up going to Africa. Maybe that's another story, but she, she said she couldn't date because you Google everybody that you date now. And so she couldn't find a date. Um, they eventually found I mean, they did stories on this and the guy that made it, made it go viral was a guy with 15,000 Twitter followers that saw it and decided to, to shoot it out and instigate his crowd, which just sent it out further and further. And they asked him and he said, you know, I certainly didn't mean to ruin anybody's life or get anybody fired, but I'd do it again. And he said, the fact that she was a public relations executive that put something that stupid out is made it almost like I couldn't not do it. Um, and so he justified everything that he did. Ironically, within a year, that guy put out something stupid on Twitter that got him in a very similar position. And he ended up writing an, an, a public apology uh, to the woman for what he had done to her. That's just how it that's just how it works. That's how cancel culture works. And it's a microcosm of how a crowd works and can just go crazy and, and destroy somebody. There was. Uh, another guy I was listening to, someone hijacked his Twitter feed. So they set up a, this was a chef in Britain. I don't have any idea who he is, but he's well known there. And so they set up a Twitter feed that was mostly like his and it fooled people into thinking it was him. And then they posted some awful stuff. He ended up finding them, interviewing them, the people that did it on, it was like in a social experiment for them on tape and then posting the tape of the interview. And what and so he did that to kind of get them. What shocked him was how angry his crowd got at those people that had hijacked his Twitter feed. And they were like, they should be killed. And just the aggressiveness and the viciousness of the, the crowd and the self-righteousness of the crowd. And that's how crowds can get, man. They're, they're dangerous. Um, it's, it's like we're looking for something to be mad at. And when a crowd gets worked up, it's like group road rage. You know, when you experience road rage, it's like everything in your life that you're mad at, but you can't do anything about just wells up inside of you. And you start yelling at this person that probably has no idea that they even cut you off. And, and it's not really dangerous because no one ever gets out of their car and does anything about it. And the only, you can say whatever you want because the only people that are going to hear it are your kids in the backseat, you know, and that's how it works. But with the crowd they get worked up 
and it does get dangerous because someone's going to instigate it and, and um, things can go bad. That's how crowds work. That's how crowds work. Now, crowds have instigators too. Um, th- this crowd that, that was in Jerusalem um, that week with Jesus, the gospels tell us a little bit about them. Uh, Jesus, right before he had gone to Jerusalem, was in a nearby town called Bethany. And in Bethany, he raised a a friend of his, Lazarus, from the dead. And so this is obviously a giant miracle, and a bunch of people saw it, and a bunch of people heard about it. And so that's part of the the crew that's following him into Jerusalem and cutting the palm branches down. Uh, It says that there are um, people in town for the Passover. So the the Passover is a feast on the Jewish feast calendar, and people would come from all over to Jerusalem, not just in Israel, but outside of Israel, to be a part of the Passover feast in, at the temple. And so um, Jerusalem is the big city in Israel, and this is a metropolitan crowd, an international crowd, and there's something different about big city crowds than about small town crowds, and that's what this is. And we're told that the crowd, again, thinks Jesus is a prophet. That's how they perceive Jesus. And for this crowd, the instigator is those religious leaders. They're jealous of Jesus, and they want to use their influence to turn the crowd against Jesus. And they've got real power. Uh, there's a, um, just a little passage in the Gospel of John where it says, and this is during that week, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in Jesus. So some of those religious leaders, as a part of the instigator crowd, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess that they believed in Jesus so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And that doesn't mean much to us because we don't have anything like that. But you get put out of the synagogue in Israel and your life is over. I mean, that is the center of community life in Israel is the synagogue. And when those religious leaders say you're out, then that's a big problem for you. And it says that they, they, they wouldn't confess that because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's kind of the, you know, a definition of how a crowd works. So they're instigators. In our day, crowds have instigators. You know, crowds have instigators. And, and instigators have agendas. And most often it's their agenda, but then they try and get you to think it's your agenda. And so I don't, I don't know what your crowd is or, or who it is. You know, for the stock market, like Warren Buffett might be the expert that we follow. And if he does something with Berkshire Hathaway, then everybody wants to do that. Um, in business, there are... There are experts, you know, I don't know. I don't even know who they are now. I used to know who they were, but I don't, you know, maybe it's Elon Musk or um, Bill Gates or whoever it is. And those are the people we'll follow. They're fashion experts. They're foodie experts like Uncle Gordon, Gordon Ramsay. He's not really my uncle, but people watch that show all the time and they, they follow him. Um, for the coronavirus, you know, there are different experts that, that we're looking to to tell us how should we act? What should we think? What, what should we believe? Because we've never been in this type of situation before. I think the, the ones that, that maybe shape the crowd the most, and this is a little bit uh, concerning, are they're experts in nothing but culture. They're cultural experts. There is a thing called an Instagram model now. What is that even? I mean, Instagram has such power that that's what that is. For years, I wondered what the Kardashians had done that so many people followed him and, and believed in him and thought, I just missed whatever it is that they'd done. I hadn't missed it. They've never done anything. They're just cultural experts. And so people follow them. Uh, our celebrities like Taylor Swift is a cultural expert. And so people follow her. Athletes can be um, a form of cultural experts. 
And so they instigate crowds and they shape how crowds think and act. Uh, I, I try really hard in my, my Sunday messages to be apolitical. Um, and so this is an apolitical statement. It's just a matter of fact. But Trump is an instigator. He knows how to instigate a crowd. <laughs> and that's why he's the president is because he knows how to instigate a crowd. And so crowds have instigators and instigators have agendas. Here's another thing about the crowd. It feels good to be a part of the crowd. Uh, someone said this to me recently, and it just stuck with me. It said, people want to be a part of a winning team. And that's true. We do. And a crowd, when you're in a big group of people, that's how it feels. Like I'm on a team and we're a winning team because we're together. And so crowds make you feel good. They give you a sense of safety. They give you a sense of acceptance. They can alleviate fear. Um, they can... Honestly, they can relieve you from having to think too much for yourself about what's going on because you can kind of just go along with what the crowds do and they can relieve you from boredom. You know, we might want to be a part of a crowd right now because we're so isolated uh, and they give you a sense of comfort. And so we got to recognize that. Like we like being a part of a crowd, even if, and maybe especially if the crowd is wrong about something and acting a little crazy. And, and so right along with that, crowds can make us feel righteous. Crowds can make us feel righteous. They can give us a sense of righteousness because if all these people are in on it, we can't all be wrong, right? Um, and I think this is key in the crowd that turns against Jesus. In this statement, crowds can make us feel righteous. Like there's a lot of depth and theological depth to this statement. In the beginning of the Bible, you've got God creating everything and we have perfect harmony with God, with each other and with the creation and then he puts them in the garden and says, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which is to say, like God gets to decide what's right and wrong, good and evil, the path we should take. And Adam and Eve rebel against God and say, no, we want to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. And, and we would all make the same choice. Well, as soon as they do that, they, something's broken inside of them and they hide. They hide from God. They hide from each other. They experience shame for the first time because they're no longer righteous. They're no longer right. And they, they instantly know that, that they've broken their relationship with God. They start pointing the finger. They point it at God. They, the woman that you gave me, she did it. She blames the devil. Like we, we point the finger at anybody but ourselves because we know something's wrong with us and we want to feel right again. And so we'll look for ways to feel right again, to cover up the things that are wrong about ourselves that deep down we know we can't fix <laughs> and um and a crowd especially when like in these cancel culture cases that i mentioned when a crowd has the sense that somebody has done something wrong it has a way to compartmentalize and say i would never do that and it makes people feel right uh, one person described cancel culture it said it happens when individuals or groups deviate from a set of community rules resulting in immediate and mass redaction of community approval. And that's what happens. Like that crowd decides somebody has violated their rules and they must be put out of the synagogue, put out of the crowd, ostracized. Uh, and so they do that. And they're focused on just the little bit of rules that they have decided are the most important rules. To be fair, churches can do this as well as anybody else can. You know, it's us and it's them. And when we find a them that's done something wrong, we can feel pretty good about us. 
And as long as there is a them to compare us to, and as long as we dictate the terms of the comparison, then we can feel good about us. Because in the limited scope, we are right and they are wrong. And that's how a crowd makes you feel righteous. And, and that can be a dangerous thing. Uh, crowds act irrationally. I think that's when crowds go a little crazy. I think the appeal of the religious leaders to this crowd was, he's not calling himself a prophet. He's saying he's the son of God, not just a prophet. Who does he think that he is while, in using, while using the implicit threat of their power against the crowd? Because they had that type of power. Um, there was a, uh, I read a, a sermon this week by a, a British, famous British pastor from the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon wrote on, on um, these passages. And, and so I'm just going to read a little bit from his sermon. He said, out of that whole assembled crowd, there was not one who would have had the presumption to accuse the Savior of having done him damage. O ravening multitude, has he not fed you when you were hungry? Did he not multiply the loaves and fishes for you? Did he not heal your lepers with his touch, cast out devils from your sons and daughters, raise up you paralytics, give sight to your blind, and open the ears of your deaf? For which of these good works do you conspire to kill him? Um, That crowd, they clamor against him as though he were the worst trouble of their lives, a pest and pestilence to the place where he dwelt. His whole intent was evidently their good. What did he preach for? No selfish motive could have been urged. Foxes had holes and the birds of the air had nests, but he had nowhere to lay his head. The charity of a few of his disciples alone kept him from absolute starvation. Cold mountains in the midnight air witnessed the fervor of his lonely prayers for the crowds who were now hating him. He lived for others. They could see this. They could not have observed him during the three years of his ministry without saying, never lived there such an unselfish soul as this. For which of these things do they clamor that he may be crucified? For which of his good works, for which of his generous words, for which of his holy deeds will they fasten his hands to the wood, the wood and his feet to the tree? The true reason of their hate, Spurgeon says, no doubt lay in the natural hatred of all men to perfect goodness. Man feels that the presence of goodness is a silent witness against his own sin, and therefore he longs to get rid of it. To be too holy in the judgment of men is a great crime, for it rebukes their sin. His holiness uh, is what got the crowd riled up against him. His statement of who he was and, and who they weren't. You know, when you're in school, it's not the smart kids that bully the slow kids. <laughs> it's the kids that don't do well who bully the kid who breaks the curve. Um, I think what Spurgeon says there is right. I think the seeds of this could be seen in that earlier passage where Jesus starts talking to the crowd about the judgment of this world has come and walking in the light while it's there and not walking in the darkness. Jesus wanted to save them. They were right when they cried out Hosanna, but they wanted Jesus to save, to save them, the Jewish people from the them, from the Romans. In reality, he was there to save them from themselves. We want Jesus to save us from some them out there. But Jesus came to save us from us. That's a more difficult message. It forces us not to look at what's wrong with the people over there or out there, which is what crowds do, but to look at what's wrong in here. And there are so many that are in this crowd, like the same crowd as we see in the scripture, 
um, today and maybe even watching this morning that think Jesus is a prophet and Jesus is a teacher. But, but surely Jesus isn't the son of God in the flesh and the savior of the world. That crowd didn't want to hear that their sins were so bad that this guy, Jesus, who was so good, had to go to a cross to pay the consequences for them. That God himself came in the flesh to take the consequences of our sins. And you and I, honestly, we don't really want to hear that either. We don't want to hear that we're so bad that someone so good had to sacrifice so much. But that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Um, Jesus wasn't looking for a crowd. It's an interesting thing about Jesus uh, during his ministries. He could gather a crowd. He could do some signs. He could feed some people. He could teach great teachings and gather a crowd. But he most often dispersed the crowd shortly after. In the Gospel of John, it records that he fed this crowd of 5,000, which is probably more like 15,000 people. And that night, he went across um, the Sea of Galilee. And then in the morning, the crowd realized he was gone. So they followed him around and they found him. And Jesus said, hey, you're only followed me because I fed you. Like I gave you dinner and now it's lunchtime and you're hungry. And I know that's the only reason you're here. So we're going to take care of this. And Jesus gave a sermon where he ends up talking about how unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And that's foreshadowing the cross and it's foreshadowing our practice of communion. But it sounds crazy, doesn't it? And, the, and it says the crowd, it says many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And it says many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. So Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's, that's what it is to come to Jesus. It's not, you don't come to Jesus in a crowd. You come to Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. There's another passage where Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're a prophet. Some say Elijah and some say John the Baptist. And he says to him, who do you say that I am? And they confess that he's the Christ. Last week, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Like all these people say. And Jesus says, Pilate, what do you say? It always comes down to you and Jesus, not what the crowd thinks. And so this is going to be my last statement about the crowds. It takes courage to stand against the crowd. It takes courage to stand against the crowd. And we see that in these scenes of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, the thief on the cross. Uh, there's three crosses. He's got thieves on either side of him. And one of them has just given Jesus the business. But the guy on the other side rebuked the other thief saying, Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we justly... For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And so the thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, another, the centurion who took part in Jesus' execution. It says, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place when Jesus dies, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the son of God. They stood against the crowd and, and more than anybody probably is Joseph of Arimathea, who is this obscure character in the gospels. 
Um, but it, Joseph, Luke tells us he's a member of the council. So he's a really important guy in Jerusalem and in Israel. And he's a good and a righteous man. And he's looking for the kingdom of God. And John tells us that he was a disciple, but he was secretly a disciple for fear of the Jews. One that, that was mentioned in the passage earlier. And then Mark says this, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage. He took courage. And he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. He risked his reputation. He risked his position. He risked his finances, his money. He could get put out of the synagogue and his life could be over. He did what Pilate was unwilling to do last week. He took courage and asked Pilate, for the body of Jesus and got it. And, and because God used Joseph in that way, we have Easter. Otherwise, they would have thrown the body out with the rest of the bodies um, into a trash dump. It takes courage. It takes courage to stand against the crowd. It's always, when you follow Jesus, it's always, at some point, at various points, going to take courage. Beware of the crowd. It's easy to believe that Jesus was a good man and a teacher and a prophet. It's harder to believe that his death and his resurrection were the turning point of history. And just don't mistake it. That's the message of Easter. In Galatians, Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says to the Romans, If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul also says in Romans, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It all hinges on this. It all hinges on the crucifixion and the resurrection and what it was for. The early church didn't go out preaching re-preaching Jesus' sermons or saying he was a good guy and a good teacher. They said, this guy rose from the dead and his death paid the consequences of our sins. And his spirit is going to fix in us the things that we cannot fix in ourselves. But to come to faith in Christ is to acknowledge that you didn't need Jesus to save you from them. You needed Jesus to save you from you. Uh, the, the crowd has a hard time with that. And with so much more that goes against so many things that the crowd that shapes our culture says today. Um, and it doesn't make a difference what the crowd thinks about all that. Uh, it makes a difference what you think about all that. Pay attention to the crowd. Pay attention to how the crowd makes you feel, how it makes you feel good, how it makes you feel bad, who you're allowing to instigate you, the things that you don't want to talk about for fear of the crowd and relate to everything that the gospel says about the crowd. And for the part of you that loves the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. Man, and pay attention too, uh, to the part of you that, that thinks the crowd has told me that I'm not enough, you know, that I'm not successful enough, or I'm not good looking enough, or I'm not, I don't have enough money, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm not a part of the in crowd, or I'm beyond forgiveness because of the things that I've done and have said and have thought. Because when it comes to you and Jesus, the crowd doesn't matter. Jesus matters. And Jesus says to you and I, like he says to that thief, like, today you can be with me in paradise. 
because the rest of this doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is you and Jesus. I'm going to ask you where you are just to close your eyes and to bow your head for just a minute as I finish this morning. And um, Lord, I, I pray that you could show us where the crowd is competing with you and keeping us from following you the way that we were made to follow you. Father, could you convict us? Could you reveal to us? God, could you relieve us of the pressure of the crowd? Could you help us to realize that we are not alone, that this has always happened, that this is an integral part of your life on earth and how you dealt with the crowds? God, could you show us the courage that it takes to stand against the crowd when we need to? And could you give us that courage by your spirit, Lord? And God, I pray for those who, this morning, that you have spoken to, that you have helped realize that, that they want you to save, to save them from a them, but they haven't asked you to, to save them from themselves, God, and that their real need is for the salvation that you've given us on the cross to save us from ourselves, God, from our sins, from the ways that we have rebelled against you. And Father, help us to realize in new ways the mercy that you have shown to us. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you guys for joining us again this morning. Again, um, please fill out that connect card before you, um, before you tune out today. And uh, if there's any way that we can help you during this time, let us know. Thanks a lot. We love you. We'll see you next week.